Welcome to the Harvard on China podcast at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. 欢迎来到费正清中国研究中心的哈佛论中国播客。The Fairbank Center is a world-leading center on China at Harvard University. The 2016 presidential election pushed the U.S.-China relationship to the forefront of public debates. This was evident not only in discussions of foreign policy, but also China's impact domestically in the U.S. Accusations that Beijing is manipulating its currency or even stealing American jobs steered China into a central role in last year's political campaigns. So, how do these accusations affect arguably the most important relationship in the world? I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Center's Harvard on China podcast, and in the middle of the 2016 election cycle, I spoke to Evan Medeiros about the state of the U.S.-China relationship. Mr. Medeiros currently leads Eurasia Group's research on Asia. Having previously served as special assistant to President Obama and senior director for Asian affairs at the National Security Council, I started our conversation by asking what formed the basis for the U.S.-China relationship during Obama's presidency. My name is Evan Medeiros. I'm a managing director and Asia practice head at Eurasia. I think that there are there are several dynamics driving the U.S.-China relationship. There's uncertainty. There's instability. There's resilience. There's maturity. There's a diversification of the U.S.-China agenda. All of which are new, emerging dynamics shaping how the U.S. and China are going to interact in Asia and globally. I've come up with these based both on my academic research on China, but more recently based on my time from the National Security Council. I spent six years as President Obama's top Asia and China advisor. Was in. Forty-plus-hour meetings with President Obama and President Hu Jintao and Xi Jinping. So I have a very good tactile feel for how the U.S.-China relationship operates, and I think that it's important to pay attention to the resilient aspects of the relationship. Since the pivot to Asia strategy was enacted mainly by the Obama administration, there's been a number of changes to the security architecture. So how is the diversifying strategic landscape in Asia shaping both the U.S. and China's involvement with the region? The diversifying、uh, nature of the strategic landscape in Asia is having a significant influence on the U.S.-China relationship.、Uh, on the one hand, it's a new source of competition.、Uh, many Chinese policymakers believe that the U.S. is using the Asia-Pacific rebalancing strategy to constrain or contain Chinese、uh, efforts in the region. That is inaccurate. Uh, it, but it's also giving a greater degree of confidence to countries in the region, so they can deal with China on more equal terms. So, to some degree, I think it's probably a long-term source of stability in the region. There are a lot of trigger issues with the U.S.-China relationship at the moment that we see in the press. So, AIIB, TPP, South China Sea, and cyber,、um, and even China's domestic changes with Hong Kong booksellers, as an example.、Um, so, talk us through the decision-making process. When you are having to weigh up what the U.S. response should be, the National Security Council has a very well-structured deliberative pro- process for weighing the costs and benefits and the trade-offs associated with different policy issues. And essentially, it's a process that begins with getting all the key stakeholders around the table, and that usually includes the Department of State, Department of Defense, the intelligence community,、uh, the Treasury Department, U.S. Trade Reps Office, the Commerce Department. Uh, in order to hear their views and to understand、uh, the nature of the trade-offs, and as those,、uh, as we conduct these meetings, they sort of go up the decision-making food chain from my level, which is the senior director and assistant secretaries, to the level of the deputies, and ultimately to the level of principals and possibly e- even the even the president. Sometimes, as you mentioned, you talk public articulation doesn't always match what. 
is actually being said or what an administration would like to be heard on an issue. So how or what kind of a role does public articulation play uh, in forming a response to an issue uh, or indeed changing an issue? Public messaging is an essential part of any successful policy. So there are often times where the administration can have the right policy choice, but if it doesn't articulate it correctly and people misunderstand it, and especially if other parties in Asia misunderstand what U.S. policy is, it can fundamentally undermine the ability to execute that policy goal. A classic example is U.S. policy related to the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. The U.S. never opposed the bank. The U.S. never tried to to undermine the effort. But because a public perception was created, it fundamentally undermined the U.S. ability to try and shape the institution into a more high-quality one. And it looked like a foreign policy setback for the Obama administration. What was your opinion about the U.K. deciding to join the AIIB? The relative lack of coordination between the UK and the other G7 economies when the UK decided to join the AIIB, I think undermined the ability of the major global economies to have maximum influence in shaping the ultimate outcome uh, of the institution. I think the US would have hoped to have a higher degree of coordination with such a, uh, a key ally like uh, the UK. But ultimately, the fact that the AIIB's articles of agreement ended up being pretty good, pretty high quality, the fact that the AIIB has decided to cooperate with, partner with the Asia Development Bank and some of its initial lendings suggests that it's all turned out relatively well. Recently, we've seen a far more united front by a lot of Western liberal democracies against domestic movements in China, countries such as Sweden, the UK, Canada, um, saying that domestic changes are not what they want to see within China and they're concerned about it. How do you think that will affect or not affect Xi's decision-making? Uh, it's difficult to say how that will affect it. I mean, I'm concerned about the political environment in China, uh, the crackdown on lawyers and NGOs, this uh, growing need by people to pledge their loyalty to the party. It's inconsistent with fundamental First Amendment freedoms. So I'm concerned about the political environment, uh, and I wonder what the ultimate motives are for Xi pursuing these kinds of strategies. What one thing do you want our audience to know about the current state of U.S.-China relations? I would say that a healthy U.S.-China relationship is not always going to be a positive and stable relationship. In other words, it's a big, complicated relationship. There are areas where we disagree. There are areas where we agree. Obviously, we want to expand our areas of cooperation, but we should get used to ups and downs in the relationship, understanding that that's not necessarily going to lead to inevitable rivalry. Is there a section of U.S.-China relations that you feel do you feel has the most scope for improvement in the near future or the most scope for cooperation in the near future? The area of the U.S.-China relationship that's most full of opportunity is on global issues. Uh, those are issues like climate change, uh, global economic growth, global health security. Those are areas where U.S. interests and Chinese interests uh, converge far more than they diverge, and China's interests in contributing to them are only growing. Thank you for listening to the Harvard on China podcast at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. To listen to more interviews from leading scholars of China, check out the Harvard on China playlist at Harvard University SoundCloud page.